0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Yes, our reading can be found on page one thousand one hundred and thirty-three. And it is Romans chapter seven, and it's starting at verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came... Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's uh, remain standing. I'll pray for us. We've sung the words that nothing compares to the promise we have in you, but we pray that we would perhaps grasp that uh, in a way that we've not ever seen it before tonight as we uh, look at your word together. So we would pray, please, Heavenly Father, you would speak to us in a most profound way in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, uh, uh, as ever, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles uh, to page uh, 1133 three, as we continue looking through the Book of Romans, uh, looking through this is If you are new here, we've been going through the Book of Romans since uh, September, and uh, well, we're on chapter seven, as you probably have guessed from our reading earlier. You might also like it, find it useful, I'm sure you will, if you dig out the, uh, the handout that is tucked inside uh, the bundle as well, uh, so you can see where we're going. A.J. Jacobs is a journalist and an author. He is the editor of Esquire magazine and uh, the author of this book, The Year of Living Biblically, which uh, is, as it says on the cover, one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. In the introduction, he writes this My quest has been this to live the ultimate biblical life, or more precisely, to follow the Bible as literally as possible, to obey the Ten Commandments, to be fruitful and multiply, to love my neighbor and so on. Now he begins by reading the entire Bible through. He spends four weeks and five hours a day reading the Bible. And he says, as I read, I type into my power book every rule, every guideline, every suggestion, every nugget of advice I find in the Bible. When I finish, I have a very long list. It runs to 72 pages, more than 700 rules. The scope is astounding. All aspects of all my life will be affected the way I talk, walk, eat, breathe, dress and hug my wife. Many of the rules will be good for me and and will, I hope, make me into a better person by the end of the year. I'm thinking of no lying, no coveting, no stealing, love your neighbour, honour your parents, dozens of them. Now, I don't know AJ, motiv- A.J. Jacobs' motivation for writing this. He, he is Jewish, and uh, as I read this, I got the impression that he was in some way searching for his roots. No doubt, he wrote it to make money. He is a writer after all. He needs to make a living. He may have been motivated to show how utterly ridiculous it is to try and take the Bible literally, and to be fair, he raises some very challenging questions here. Whatever, And it is actually very amusing as well. Whatever his motivation, he is a good writer, and it did make me chuckle in places, Uh, here's uh, how uh, chapter one begins i've chosen september the 1st to start my project and from the moment i wake up the bible consumes my life i can't do anything without fearing i'm breaking a biblical law before i so much as inhale or exhale i have to run through a long mental checklist of the rules it begins when i open my closet to get dressed the bible forbids men to wear women's clothing. So that comfortable Dickinson College sweatshirt is off limits. It was originally my wife's. The Bible says to avoid wearing clothes made of mixed fibres, so I have to mothball my Polycotton Cotton Esquire magazine T-shirt. And loafers? Am I allowed to wear leather? Uh, leather? I, I go to the living room, click on my power book and open my biblical rules file. I scroll down to find one about animals. Pigskin and snakeskin are questionable, but it looks like regular old cow leather is permissible. But wait, am I even allowed to use my computer? Well, it's an entertaining book. Um, Not as entertaining as I thought it might be for you, but I've enjoyed it. Um, I've I've read the first 130 pages and it has some fascinating insights. But even though A.J. Jacobs has read so much of God's law and thought so hard about it, I might add, it seems to me he just doesn't understand the point of the law. But before we're too dismissive of him, my guess is that many Christians don't either really know what the point of the law is. Let me ask you, what is the place of God's law for the Christian? That question would have begun to fly through the minds of the first readers of the book of Romans as they read the last verse of the section we looked at last week. Look with me, if you will, at chapter seven and verse six, uh, where we read this. But now, dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, does that mean as a Christian, God's law is obsolete? Certainly, uh, those Christians in the church in Rome who'd been converted from Judaism would have found this very disconcerting. They might even have heard Paul saying, there's no place for God's law, you can get rid of it. Uh, They they might have been hearing uh, Paul say, you can rip it up and just get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. They might even have heard Paul saying that God's law isn't relevant to the Christian, that God's law is actually sinful. That's why Paul asked the next question in verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's the question on at least some people's lips having read through uh, verse six. The answer is emphatic, verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? certainly not so i'd uh, better start sticking this back together again Uh, uh, just in case you're worried it's not a bible i just covered it uh, to look like one Um, so you can you can get back off the chair off this off your seat and back on the chair it's okay i haven't ripped up a bible now with all the props to one side uh, paul is clear here the old testament law god's law is good And uh, that's the first point on the handout, if you're still following along with me. Look at his conclusion to the first part of his argument, verse 12, over the page in Romans 7. Verse 12. So then, this is how he concludes, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. So Paul is clear, God's law is good. Of course it is, it is from God. And God's law reflects his character. God's law is good, that's the conclusion. But still, in the light of verse six, if we've been released from the law, what is the value of the law? What is the point of the law? Well, first, in this section, we see God's law is good because it makes me aware of my sin. So Paul writes in verse seven, back again to verse seven, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now, we've already seen Paul say the same thing in chapter 3, verse 20, where he wrote, through the law, we've become conscious of sin. Now, that was Paul's experience. As he read God's law, he became aware of his sin. And in verses 7 to 11, Paul tells us how God's law made him aware of sin. And especially it was the 10th commandment, do you see? The law which tells us not to covet. End of verse seven, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, just a technicality, uh, and then we'll really get going. Uh, what we read in verses seven to 11 is how Paul experienced an awareness of sin. But it's not unique to Paul. As we read through this, we see it it mirrors Adam in the garden. Paul is definitely making us think of that. It mirrors the nation of Israel. And I want to suggest that this is the story and experience of every real Christian believer. As we read God's law, it makes us aware of sin. And for that, uh, for Paul, that happened through the 10th commandment. End of verse 7 Do not covet. Now, just think a moment of why that was so crucial for the Apostle Paul. Before he was Paul, before he was converted, do you remember he was Saul of Tarsus? He was a Pharisee, a very religious and respectable Jewish leader. In his letter to the Philippians, he describes himself like this. Circumcised on the eighth day. The point of all this is that he kept the law. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul was a faultless Pharisee. He completely conformed to God's law. At least he did outwardly. He didn't steal. He wasn't adulterous. He kept the Sabbath. Outwardly, he did everything that he should. And that's why the 10th commandment was so important to him, because covetousness is internal. It's a desire, it's a drive, it's a lust, if you will. It's actually a form of idolatry because it puts something else in the place of God. When I covet something, I want that thing or that person so much that in that moment, I want it more than I want God. Idolatry, you see. So as a Pharisee, Paul might have thought that he'd kept the commandments. And looking at him, we might have believed that he kept the commandments too. But covetousness lurked hidden in his heart and revealed in him the depth and extent of sin. And while this was true of Paul and of Adam before him, it is true of everyone who honestly looks into God's law. Now, fascinatingly, A.J. Jacobs discovered it on the very first day of his attempt to live a totally biblical life for a year. Remember, he's just turned on his computer and then he writes this, and then I stumble. Within half an hour of waking, I check the Amazon.com sales ranking of my last book. How many sins does that comprise? Pride, envy, greed? I can't even count. I don't do much better on my errand to a company called Mailboxes, etc. I wanted to Xerox a half dozen copies of the Ten Commandments so I can scotch tape them up all over the apartment, figuring it to be a good memory aid. The Bible says those with a good sense are slow to anger. So when I get there at the same time as this wiry 40-ish woman and she practically sprints to the counter to beat me in line, I try not to be annoyed. And when she tells the mailbox, etc. employee to copy something on the one and only functioning Xerox machine, I try to shrug it off. And when she pulls out a stack of pages that looks like the collected works of J.K. Rowling and plonks it on the counter, I say to myself, slow to anger, slow to anger, after which she asked some complicated question involving paper stock. I remind myself, remember what happened when the Israelites were waiting for, for Moses while he was up on the mountain for 40 days? They got impatient, lost faith, and were struck with a plague. Oh, and she pays by check and asked for a receipt and asked to get the receipt initialed. The proverbs a uh, collection of wisdom of Old Testament say that smiling always makes you happy which is actually backed up by by psychological studies so I stand there with a flight attendant like grin on my face but inside I am full of wrath Do you see God's law reveals how sinful I am internally I can look great on the outside, but on the inside, I'm horrible, full of pride and envy and greed, impatient and angry over the photocopying. I discovered this for myself. That's why I became a Christian. And I see people discovering it for themselves when they come on the Christianity Explored course. When I first talk to people, they say, I'm a good person, I live a good life. I think I should go to heaven. I've kept God's commandments. I don't steal, I don't murder, I haven't committed adultery. And then on week three of Christianity Explored, we look at Jesus' words in Mark chapter seven. Now come with me, if you will. Keep something in in Romans seven and come with me to Mark chapter seven and see this. Page 1010, 1010. 1,010. And it's Mark chapter seven and verses 20 to 23. Here, Jesus is talking about what makes a person unclean. That is not fit to be in God's presence. And his big point is that it's not what we look like on the outside that makes us clean or unclean. It's the inside that shows how clean or unclean we are mark chapter 7 verse 20 jesus went on what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean for from within out of men's hearts come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness envy slander arrogance and folly all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean now there's a number of surprises i reckon in that passage but i don't want to show you just the first one It's what comes at the top of the list. If I'd have written this list of sins, I'd have put murder first, then adultery, then theft. But Jesus doesn't. Do you see it? He starts there in verse 21 with our thought life. What goes on in our minds? And it is crucial that he starts there because if he'd started the list with murder and then adultery and then theft, by the time he got to some of the other sins that are listed there that I know I'm guilty of, like verse 22, greed and envy and arrogance, by the time he reached those things, I'd be feeling quite proud of myself saying, murder, no, haven't done that. Theft, no, adultery, no. But by starting with my thought life, I am exposed immediately. And of course, my thought life and covetousness, my inward desires for things, reveals the depth of my sin. In my thoughts, I have been adulterous. And in my mind, I have been a thief. I have wanted someone else's stuff and wanted it so much that if I'd not had the opportunity and not been fearful of the consequences of being caught, I might well have taken it for myself. Do you see properly read and this is what the 10th commandment does for me, properly read, God's law reveals the extent and depth of my sin. And that is a good thing, for if I were not aware of my sin, I would never turn to Jesus Christ. So come back to Romans chapter seven and verse seven. God's law makes me aware of my sin. And then secondly, uh, verse eight, and if you're on the handout just you just have to flip it over now god's law shows me how sinful sin is look at verse 8 but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the command produced in me every kind of covetous desire for apart from law sin is dead paul is simply saying that god's law provokes sin in verse eight, Paul is telling us that he experienced what Adam experienced in the garden and what all real believers experienced. When Paul was told not to covet, he suddenly found himself coveting all the more. It's the perversity of the human condition. It's the forbidden fruit. When I'm told not to, I want to. Have you noticed that in your life? I find myself often in hospitals visiting people. And so I often find myself walking through hospital corridors, not sure where I'm going, and looking very carefully at all the signs in the corridor so that I can find my way to the right ward. And as I walk through hospital corridors, I often see signs on door that say, Private, do not enter. And you know, as soon as I see that sign, I want to go through that door. It hadn't dreamt, it had gone through my mind once to go through it. As soon as I see it, I want to go through it. Does that happen to you as well? Oh, it's only me. Okay, well... <laughs> The strange thing is, if it said broom cupboard on the door, it wouldn't cross my mind to go in. Isn't that strange? So I reckon a big dose of reverse psychology could improve hospital security no end. Put broom cupboard on every door that is actually private and you wouldn't even have to lock the door. It'd be great. Anyway, the point is this. When God's law comes to me, I want to do the wrong thing. Now, that's not because God's law is bad. No, God's law is good. I want to do the wrong thing because sin is in me. That's what's going on in verse eight. The law is not the problem, sin is. So John Stott says, and the quote is on the handout, sin twists the function of the law from exposing and condemning sin into encouraging and even provoking it. But he goes on to say, we cannot though blame the law for proclaiming God's will. And because of that, because sin twists the law, it looks as if the law has brought me death. Verse nine, once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. That's what it seems like. But of course, the law doesn't actually bring death. It's my disobedience of God's law that brings death. And when we were in uh, Dorset a few uh, years back, walking along the cliffs of the dramatic Jurassic Coast, I, I saw a sign, do not walk on the coastal path. Explained, due to erosion, this path is dangerous. And that was, if I may call it this, a law, and a good law, it had to keep me from death. But some people refused to obey that law. Indeed, tragically, while we were in that region, we heard of someone who had fallen to their death while walking along the coastal path. It wasn't that law that caused their death. It was their refusal to keep the Lord, you see. And what is true true physically with a dangerous cliff is true spiritually with God's law. 4, verse 11, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Again, if you were here last week, it's exactly what we saw last week. The deceitfulness of sin sin deceives me by promising me so much sin tells me not to obey god's law because it's only there to ruin my fun sin promises me a great and happy time and a delicious experience that will fulfill me and give me everything i want go on says sin as it entices you to go against god's law go on it'll be nice it'll make you so happy you deserve it think of the pleasure it can't hurt you that's how sin deceives me The great deception is the lie that disobeying God's law won't hurt me, but it does. Because it does hurt me when I go against law. It hurts me now, leaving me disappointed and deflated and feeling disgusted with myself. And in that sense, every time I sin, I die a little now. But even worse, sin kills me eternally. Sin results in eternal death when I come face to face with God. That's what really is going on at the end of verse 11 death but again it's not the fault of god's law when that happens verse 12 so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy righteous and good did that which is good then become death to me by no means but in order that sin might be recognized as sin it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful Again, John Stott explains it with his usual brilliant clarity. It's on the handout. God's law exposes sin and condemns it. And the law does not cause death, sin does. Indeed, the extreme sinfulness of sin is seen precisely in the way it exploits a good thing, the law, for an evil purpose, death. So in a nutshell, Paul is saying the law isn't our problem, isn't the problem, our sinfulness is. The law is a good thing in that it shows us our sinfulness and that should make us turn to Christ. Let me tell you about a guy in his 30s. Well, he he was in his 30s, 19 or 20 years ago. I was leading what we called a Christian basics course, very similar to our Christianity Explored course. On the last week of uh, the six-week course, the seven guys on the course all said what they'd learned from the course. And one of them said this, well, I've gone backwards When I started this course six weeks ago, I would have said that I was a decent bloke. Now I realise what a bad person I am. I've gone backwards. Three weeks later, he became a Christian. So he hadn't gone backwards at all. God's law had revealed to him what a sinful man he was. Now, he was a very nice, respectable guy. But the point is this. He didn't become worse by looking at God's law. It didn't make him a bad person. God's law just showed him how sinful he was. And it's good that it did that because as his sin was exposed, he turned to Jesus. Had he never seen that, he'd never have turned to Jesus. Been just as sinful, just wouldn't have been a forgiven sinner, that's all. So God's law is good. And secondly, and much more briefly, as you can see by the handout, we're almost at the end. God's law is not powerful. That's verses 14 to 20. See, we've already seen, and I hope you've felt it, how powerful sin is. You know it in your own life. Sin will take God's law and twist it and use it as an opportunity to deceive you and me. So while God's law is good in showing us our sin, it doesn't have the power to break us free from sin. Look at verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. It's exactly what we were thinking about last week. We are slaves to sin. We are bound by sin. We cannot break free. I know that. Hundreds of us here know that same experience, just as millions of people all around the world know it too. In just six and a half weeks on January the 1st, thousands of people will turn over a new leaf. From that day, January the 1st, 2014, they will try and live a different life. I'm not just thinking about people who want to do a bit of dieting or getting fit. I'm thinking about people who start the new year with much more noble and profound New Year's resolutions. To be less materialistic, to spend less time at the office, to be less grumpy with the children, to be a kinder person, to be more thoughtful towards others. In six and a half weeks, many people will make noble resolutions. But as the old saying goes, January the 2nd is the day when we discover that it's easier to break a promise than it is to break a habit. You know that you make a promise on January the 1st and on January the 2nd, you can't do it. And what is true of New Year's resolutions is the experience of everyone who actually ends up turning to Jesus Christ. We look at God's law and we want to live up to it. We try to live up to it and we fail miserably because we are slaves to sin. And having God's law doesn't release us from that slavery. Look at verse 15. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, Is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Sin is at work in me, and sin is so powerful, and God's law simply does not have the power to enable me to live the life that I ought to live. So yes, God's law is good, but it can't change me and so verse 21 I find this law at work when I want to do good evil is right there with me for in my inner being I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death that's my experience and as I said last week that's exactly why I became a Christian I tried, I really tried to live up to God's standards, but I couldn't do it. And trying to do it left me distraught. Trying to live by God's law, I was completely discouraged. Aware that I am a wretch, verse 24, and knowing that I need rescuing. And so, verse 25, thanks be to God, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, I can be, as it says in verse 24, rescued from this body of death. Isn't it wonderful? Do you see why God's law is so good? It shows me that I'm sinful. But the point at the end of last week is it's not powerful enough to change me. And so as I read the law, I see how sinful I am and that throws me, or should throw me, not back to the law to try and live it better more and more and try harder and harder, but it should throw me on the mercy of God. It should make me run to Jesus Christ and rely on him and him alone upon his saving death for me. And what all this should do is simply make me say, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh we thank you our Lord and God that uh, you in your great kindness have uh, revealed to us our sinfulness shown us how sinful we are. And uh, not so that we just then wallow in our sinfulness, but so that we, we grab hold of the solution, that we run to the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you don't just show us our sin, but that you deal with our sin. And we thank you very much. We thank you indeed from the bottom of our hearts today for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. And so we do pray for thankful hearts And now through the rest of this meeting as we take bread and wine in a moment and then as we leave here, hearts that are so thankful that we want to live the way we can for you. In Jesus' name, amen.